This podcast is about family violence. If this topic is distressing for you, or if you're with younger listeners, it may not be for you. If you need support in regard to sexual assault, domestic or family violence, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732 for 24-7 phone and online services. If you, a child or another person is in immediate danger, please call 000. The opera acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present, and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger. Family violence is a reality that many people face every day. In this episode, I have the privilege of speaking with a survivor, Emma, on her pathway out of family violence. And she shares her experiences with health practitioners along that journey. Joining her are Professor Kelsey Hegarty, an academic GP who holds the Joint Chair in Family Violence Prevention at the University of Melbourne and the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, and Dr. Anne Tonkin, who trained as a general physician with a subspecialty in clinical pharmacology. She is chair of the Medical Board of Australia. And just to bring an extra splash of color to our podcast today, you may occasionally hear her rooster in the background of our conversation. So we'll get to the conversation with all of the guests in a moment. But first, Emma, could you maybe start us off by sharing what you want to of your story and your experience of recognizing and disclosing family violence in your own life? So, yeah, I had been in a relationship with my husband for 11 years. And over that time, we did everything normal couples would do. You know, we traveled, we bought a house, we used to go out for nice dinners, we got married, we had two beautiful children. I just put it down to um, rough patches and I never really labelled the relationship as violent. Um, When you're with someone for so long, you do have rough patches and get on one another's nerves, but somewhere it crosses the line. And I adapted and lived with it for so long. So we had lovely normal moments, um, but also fights and, you know, constant put downs. What was that like? Towards the end, I was actually living in the spare room with a baby lock on the door um, and really felt like I was living on edge. Um, Come Monday morning, I couldn't remember how my weekend was. Um, I feel like I was in a constant fight, flight or freeze mode, which was really scary. Um, I wondered if it was because he had hit me across the back of the head one too many times or too hard. And when that happened, I always thought of Philip Hughes, the cricketer that got hit in the back of the head and, you know, accidentally dropped dead. And I wondered when that was going to happen to me. Um, And it really became too difficult to remember the incidences. Um, It was easier to get on with life and try a bit harder or try something else to make things work because I was invested in the relationship and our marriage and our children and the life we built together. 
what was it like for you trying to to talk about um, this, talk about what was going on in your life or disclose it to people? Is that something you can talk to us about? So there was a particular incident one time. Um, he tried to suffocate me and I drove to the police station and it was about 2.30 in the morning and the police station was closed because of COVID. And it said, you know, if you're having an emergency, call triple zero. And I was so tired and I was so upset. I just drove home and took myself to the spare room and went to sleep and woke up in the morning and, you know, didn't deal with it and got up and took the kids to the park and carried on. And that's just kind of how things went. Because it was easier sort of to, to just keep going, you mean, than talking about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, talking about what was happening was so much harder than actually experiencing it. Um, reporting what was happening has consequences. Um, there is shame, judgment, stigma, you know, the potential for retaliation from the person that you're living with and sharing a home with. Um, when you experience like a fight or the violence, you're so full of adrenaline or in a dissociative state that you don't actually realise what is going on. But when you talk to someone about it, the only way I can describe it is just like you're sober and you are really at rock bottom and reality sets in and you're like, this is actually happening to me. <laughs> and when that sets in, um, you know, you are at rock bottom and then you're at the whim of someone else judging you or minimising what is going on. But at some point it sounds like you... Um spoke to um, some health practitioners about your experience. Can you tell us a, a bit about that? Um, over the years, we saw a couple of psychologists to do couples therapy. One, I remember, sent me home with a sheet on how to talk more assertive when I told him what I was experiencing and that he was being aggressive and we were having these types of fights. That was, yeah, really not what I needed. And I saw a GP years ago to document my injuries for a police report after an incident that happened. Um, they were quite horrific. I had, he had thrown me down the stairs and held me around my throat and I had um, bruising on my hands and my knuckles were all grazed and I had marks around my throat. And she wrote it all down, but then she just gave me a sheet and a referral to go and see a psychologist that was addressed as dear psychologist. And I had to go and try and find someone to see. Um, so I did a Google and I found a lady and she wanted to do kinesiology and challenge my belief system, um, which was 
also not what I needed. So I went back and asked the GP for a recommendation and she said, you know, we've just got a list of names in the system so I can just pick one but you can really go and choose to see who you want. Um, part of me felt like in that situation, like, is what I'm experiencing not bad enough? Like, how bad does it have to get to be taken seriously? Like, you see the stories on the news of women, but they're dead by then and it's too late. Like, I started to get really run down and sick a lot of the time after years of living with this and I ended up in hospital and the emergency physician that I saw said, we hope you'll be able to go home later today or tonight. Um, I cried. <laughs> I did not want to go home. I was so run down and sick and needing to look after the kids at home that, like, I couldn't get better if I was at home. Um, and she saw how upset I was and I said, I can't go home, like, my husband's horrible to me. So the doctor sent a social worker to speak to me and the social worker let me know that the doctor had notified child protection and I was just devastated. Like I was so sick and so upset already and then to feel like I've just been reported to child protection was honestly like the biggest kick in the guts. <laughs> um, I needed help and... I just couldn't even deal with what that meant. Um, that this actually happened on three different occasions, one with the doctor at emergency and twice with support workers where I was genuinely being honest about what I was experiencing and then the next day get a, child, a call from child protection to find out that they've received a notification or concerns from someone, it really stopped me from wanting to talk to anyone. And um, once child protection are involved, they automatically contact each parent to talk about the concerns they've received. And I had to try and explain this to my husband who wanted to know who I've told what. Um, child protection also contact daycare. So then I have to explain myself to daycare. And all through this, there was never any violence towards or in front of the kids. Like, they were always fine. I always had them at the forefront of anything I ever did. So in the end, it was actually my wonderful GP who helped me the most. Um, she's about my age and has just finished her fellowship in general practice. I was so upset. <laughs> And unwell one weekend and I had like 10 out of 10 pain ringing in my ears and in my head. She said to me, let's get your pain under control so that you can look after the kids and she prescribed me a packet of Endone. My husband was an addict and when he found out that I had Endone, he took my medication and 
I had to call her the next day and tell her what happened and ask for a new script because I couldn't get out of bed. I was too sick. I was so nervous about talking to her, but she actually believed me. And she said, you know, let's just get this pain under control so that you can look after your babies and have a chat about what's going on. And that was the first time that, like, I felt believed in or that I felt like I could trust someone. Sounds like she then was a big part of your um, pathway out of the situation. Yeah, I think so. I pretty much told her everything and she said, whatever I need, just come into the practice to see me. You don't need an appointment and if I'm not here, I'll organise the nurse to see you um, because I knew the practice nurse quite well and one of us will be on hand to see you. And so that happened a couple of times And they would just document what happened and take photos if there were any injuries. And they just listened and gave me a hug and didn't pressure me to leave or made me feel like I was going to be reported. Um, They validated how I was feeling and I trusted them. And eventually it sounds like from what you're saying that you um, did then, um, you were able to move out of the situation. Yeah, so um, I eventually left the home with the kids to stay with family and it wasn't until I had left and felt like I was in a safe space that I reported anything to police um, while we were away. Um, I was able to stay in contact with my GP via telehealth And she resent me all of our scripts because I left in such a rush. I hadn't collected them from our local pharmacy. And she just called to check in every couple of weeks to see how the kids and I were going and if I needed anything. When police investigated my allegations, they were able to lay charges for uh, the incidents that my GP or the nurse took notes on. Through the process with police, I learned that what was written down became evidence. Um, So if nothing was written down, um, no one can really do about it after such a long period of time had passed. Um, It's just hearsay and incredibly hard to prove um, in court. Um, The fact that my GP took notes and the nurse saw me and took photos Um, and didn't judge me was everything and those were the things um, that meant my husband was charged um, with a string of offences and jailed. Emma, thank you for what you've shared with us. Now, Anne and Kelsey, welcome to the conversation. Uh, Can we start with you, Kelsey, and maybe you could tell us about your connections to family violence? I was a general practitioner orientated towards mental health 30 years ago and I would read in the newspaper, one in four people have domestic violence and I thought, I'm not seeing one in four women and I was pretty good at my mental health um, counselling and I'd learned all that and yet 
I didn't ask. So once I started asking, I got interested in this area and then I got interested in why health practitioners weren't asking and I went on to do a PhD um, in this area and now try and train health practitioners how to respond in um, a much better way. Thanks. And, and Anne, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your connection right now to, to family violence? Sure, Susan. Um, I'm the chair of the Medical Board of Australia and, and the board is, is responsible for regulating medical practitioners around the country. We've been aware over the last few years of the issue of family violence and the issue that health practitioners don't always deal with it particularly well. And so we're very keen for health practitioners to upskill themselves. And so uh, I'm very interested in what Kelsey has to say in particular, as well as what Emma has been saying. Um, And we're very supportive of of health practitioners upskilling and training to be able to deal with this issue better. Kelsey, do you want to start us off by talking a bit about what we do know about the experiences of survivors of domestic and family violence and their relationship with the health system? Similar to what we've heard, um, a lot of survivors in the system are actually um, blamed or not believed or not listened to. And I think um, despite that, we know that health practitioners are the highest professional group survivors do talk to about domestic violence and sexual violence and family violence, even more than police. So we're a really key area of earlier engagement and um, many survivors attend and are either um, not asked even if they show clinical indicators such as mental health issues or chronic pain as as we've heard that um, Emma's been talking about and we know what um, survivors actually want from health professionals they um, do want a very non-judgmental supportive response and to provide a safe and supportive environment for them to be able to discuss this, um, fostering trust and rapport. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But it's not necessarily the experience of many survivors. No. So they may not get an optimal first-line response as outlined by the World Health Organisation And that response is actually a very simple mnemonic called LIVES, which is listen, inquire about needs, validate and believe someone's experience, um, enhance their safety according to what they think is likely to enhance their safety and offer ongoing support. Um, I think the greatest gift a health professional can give someone is to walk the journey with them. When we think about the role of health practitioners in this, um, in working with um, survivors of uh, domestic and family violence, do you think they're sort of currently stepping into that? Do you think they're currently fulfilling it? Look, I think it's changing a lot. Um, as, as, As we heard from Emma, her GP was her linchpin in the end. And so, um, it sounded to me like that GP was doing lives you know, was listening and inquiring about needs. So that that recognising when something should be happening, responding to that with the empathic listening and um, talking about risk and safety issues and then reviewing and following up. I think, I think uh, in, the, in the 
long time I've been training health practitioners, many of them have those skills to do that. They haven't ever been trained on the safety and risk piece. And um, when I make an analogy with suicide risk, then they, they sort of click into things. And when I make an analogy with you know, we don't get frustrated when um, someone's behaviour change. you know, when the person doesn't leave sort of thing, they feel frustrated. But in fact, they, you know, they can identify the fact that it's not even their behaviour. It's not the victim survivor's behaviour. It's actually the perpetrator's behaviour. So you're not even talking to the person where the um, abusive behaviour is happening. So it's almost impossible for that person to change that dynamic um, when it's their behaviour. So, Anne, what does good medical practice say about health practitioners reporting perpetrators and supporting victims? And do you think that this expectation has changed over time? The code of conduct for doctors in Australia is called good medical practice and it includes some um, items about doctors needing to be aware of the reporting obligations that they have under the law in various jurisdictions and that varies from one jurisdiction to another so people need to know their local requirements but I think um, Emma has made the point very well that just reporting is not enough and being able to support the victim survivor is a really important thing to be able to do and to, to even identify it in the first place. So I think doctors need to be skilled at doing that and understand how to do that sensitively and, and well and supportively. Um, and if they're not clear about how that all works, then, then I think it, the onus is on doctors who are in the, working in the front line to... Um, to get some training in that area. Um, and I do think the expectation has changed over time. I think there has been a very big shift in, in community attitudes and in what people will tolerate and in what the community will tolerate. And it's no longer an issue that people need to feel ashamed of. It's not something that we should shut behind closed doors. It's something that people may wish to talk about if if they want to, and doctors should provide an environment which allows people and even encourages them to if, if that's what they need to do and then know how to support them once they have divulged that issue. Emma, from the patient perspective, what's your expectation of health practitioners in this context? So for me, I really just expect my doctor or health practitioner to believe me. Um, whether it's saying that I have a migraine or, you know, talking about I can't sleep or talking openly about my situation in my private relationships. Um, I would expect them to believe me and to be in a safe space where I don't fear being reported or, on the other hand, feel like I'm being rushed through the system handed a referral and having your concerns dismissed or minimised. We've synthesised the um, literature on the barriers and those personal barriers about I can't interfere, you know, because I'll do something wrong or I don't have control because women don't seem to be able to leave and I won't take responsibility. It's, you know, social workers or someone else's responsibility in a hospital. They're the personal barriers and, and we need to shift them. But really the system needs to change as well because the barriers are structural. So, 
you know, ED, where is a private space for a start, you know, to ask? You can't ask without, you know, actually being um, alone. You know, they often try to tackle the problem on their own um, and there's not a supportive management or leadership and governance around training or policies or response protocols or resources. So, you know, in lots of chronic disease, there's lots of those sorts of things, isn't there, but not in this area. And then the societal beliefs that, you know, we we sort of blame the victim or normalise it and um, or that it only presents in certain types of, of, of women. But we all these barriers can be overcome, but we need to change at both the personal or individual practitioner level as well as the system level. I found that my GP was much more accessible than any psychologist that I ever saw. You know, I could pick up a phone and get an appointment with my GP and see them on a much more regular informal basis than an hour-long set appointment, you know, that was once a fortnight or once a month. And when I could talk to my GP that I had trust with, like I could work through things in my own head and come to terms with what was actually going on because when I initially saw her and spoke to her like I didn't identify that I was in a relationship a family violence situation Um, but the more I talked about it the more I could come to terms with what was actually happening and plan a way out or you know plan even what my next steps were Um, you know what Kelsey said that it's really frustrating for GPs to hear well why don't you leave Um, because you don't actually realize that you need to leave and you don't realize what is going on but the longer you have those conversations um, the more you come to terms with that's what needs to happen and when you have that trust and support of someone it really helps at the end of the day and can make all the difference. And I liked what you said, um, Emma, about reflecting your own head. Because to me, that's when I'm act when I'm a general practitioner and I'm in clinical practice and not in my research. It's really that that sounding board that you know we do for all sorts of patients, not just this one. You know, this topic. And so that's what I try and reassure health practitioners that they pr- have these skills. And this is just you know, a a sensitive, challenging area and um, they might need to learn a few more things, but that that it's actually able to be done. And we've done some work on what makes people, you know, health practitioners interested or ready to do this work. Um, And one is a personal commitment, either from their own experience of domestic and family violence or sexual violence, or from a you know, human rights, child rights, feminist perspective. So they're the ones who are more likely to do this work. If they've had a go at it and succeeded, you know, in that lives approach, they've had a go and the patients have told them it's good. If they actually trust that the health setting is a good place, as I said, sometimes they think the police should deal with it or social workers, you know, if they actually trust. And, you know, that that is, it's really helpful if they've got someone to collaborate with. You know, GPs are very isolated, but if you're in a hospital system, collaborating with other professionals um, and, as I said, a health system that really puts in place some organisational things. 
you know, so there are the encouraging news is there are more people doing this work and we do know ways, not just with training, but by, as I said, putting in place infrastructure around protocols and procedures and resources and referral pathways that um, can help. Mm, absolutely. Now, Anne, one of the things that Emma spoke about earlier was about child protection, and you've also uh, referred to reporting. Uh, can you comment on that in the context of health practitioners? Particularly in the context of Emma's story, it really didn't help for any of the health practitioners she was seeing early on to just have a knee-jerk reaction and report to child protection because if they asked the proper questions and got a good history, they would have found out that, that Emma's children were not being exposed uh, to the family violence situation and therefore there was no onus on them to report. And this is why I say I think doctors really need to understand the law and the rules in their own jurisdiction to know exactly when they need to report and when they don't and to consult with the victim survivor about whether or not reporting would be A, necessary and B, helpful because in Emma's case it seems that it wasn't very helpful, at least in the early stages. I do think that there's a space for child protection. Obviously when children present with injuries or there are serious concerns, but in that instance I hope that the doctor would say, I need to do this and I'm going to be there with you and help you through the process and not do it behind your back or without consulting you about it. So it sounds like it's at least in part about transparency and trust in that relationship to, to talk with you through that process. A hundred percent. The worst thing is going to talk to someone and then getting a call out of the blue to say that you've been reported. So Kelsey, what do you think should be expected of health practitioners when it comes to a decision to involve child protection? I think this is a really challenging area for health practitioners. Um, they're taught about mandatory reporting. They're taught about the red flags for um, identifying and recognising the fact that a child may be experiencing child abuse. I've got a PhD student, Jackie Karupu, who's been looking into this, and there's the challenges are uh, twofold, I think. They, um, when they do report, they have little faith in the system. So the, de the decisions about whether a child is better from reporting and going into the child protection system and into foster care and et cetera makes them pause. You know, and the second thing that makes them pause is their close connection with a family and a therapeutic relationship, sometimes with the um, protective parent, but also with the abusing parent. So that complexity of not having as much faith in the system and having the close connection might counter the knowledge that they are supposed to report by recognising the red flags. And we know that more education and discussion on this really helps them because it's not an area they've had a lot of education in. You know, it's mentioned in paediatrics, in medical school and in general practice and places. And then often we don't get much more training on that. So 
um, we at Safer Families at University of Melbourne have really um, tried to develop um, more modules around this, but also for discussion because it's it's sometimes a very grey area. Um, and, and Kelsey, we know that not all survivors of family violence are women. Could you talk to that issue and, and maybe to any other misconceptions that are common about um, domestic and family violence? My passion for this area came when people uh, 25 years ago were saying men hit women and women hit men equally. So that's a misconception. And, and um, it's if you actually ask uh, a woman, has she pushed a man? She says yes and vice versa. But, of course, one, we know there's a difference in strength. Two, we know the woman might be pushing in terms of self-defence. Um, so the contexts of it and the level of fear are different. And those push or shoves, physical violence, might be in the context of conflict or in the context of drinking. So that is a different sort of domestic violence and family violence where we're talking about where one person is really afraid of another. Now, men can still be victims of the more complex coercive control. Um, particularly, they can be victims of uh, non-physical sort of violence, um, particularly uh, monitoring and uh, some controlling behaviours. So there are some men who experience that sort of emotional abuse and putting people down. And that is something that I think we need to look into more. But in terms of the physical and sexual violence, it's overwhelmingly women who are the victims and who are afraid of their partners. So um, what I have to say about it is that in some ways we've been reacting by trying to say it's definitely gendered, it's definitely gendered, but in the, in the process we may have missed out on addressing some of men's experiences of particularly emotional abuse. So, Anne... Just for a minute, I want to focus on kind of a flip side of this conversation that we've talked about, because unfortunately, we do know that uh, sometimes health practitioners are themselves the perpetrators in family violence situations. Can you speak about what the board's view is about this and how that might be relevant currently? Yes, I think uh, the board's attitude has changed significantly over the past 10 years as community expectations have changed. And the board has now made it very clear that it has zero tolerance for practitioners who are perpetrators of family violence. If you think back a decade or so, um, people used to say, well, what a doctor does in their private life is up to them. And since family violence is generally done in private, um, that that should not be the board's business. But we've had a very hard look at, at that argument and we do not accept that argument anymore. Um, so there are a number of things that the board has uh, changed in the way that we handle um, complaints made about doctors who are alleged to be perpetrators of family violence. The first is that we have a dedicated team of decision makers who make all the decisions about those matters. The second is that they start from the point of believing the survivor um, rather than disbelieving the survivor so that the, those matters are taken very seriously and fully investigated. And we have had some very strong results from tribunals in the jurisdictions when we have felt that the situation was severe enough that the practitioner 
um, had uh, in, had committed uh, professional misconduct um, and referred them to the tribunal. The tribunal has agreed in several cases. So we, we are now getting um, very strong results supporting our new approach. So fundamentally, we don't think doctors are fit to be doctors if they are perpetrators of family violence. That's the bottom line. And I don't think the public would expect that they would be uh, allowed to go on being a doctor if, if that's what they do in their private life because they see people who may be survivors of domestic violence and they probably don't necessarily manage those interactions all that well if they're a perpetrator. And the public interest in seeing somebody who they can trust is not a perpetrator, I think, is really important. So if somebody's been seeing a doctor and then something comes out in the into the public domain about them being a perpetrator of family violence, I would imagine that would be quite devastating if you'd been uh, attending that doctor and trying to talk about those issues. So for a number of reasons, the board is very clear that family violence is not acceptable in uh, the medical profession, and we will take steps when we're made aware of it. Thank you. Now, Emma, I wonder if you have any comments you want to make about uh, what you've heard Anne say about the board's response to this or the board's view of it? I think that a doctor or a health practitioner that is a perpetrator could potentially do more harm than good um, when seeing victims. Um, that if they don't have insight into their own behaviour, how can they recognise it in others or know what support to provide, um, potentially minimise or dismiss patient concerns? I think family violence is all about power and control and those behaviours would potentially transfer to their patient relationships and taking advantage of really vulnerable situations. Um, I also wonder whether it would affect their working relationships with other colleagues, um, which could make a really unsafe work environment or practice setting. Thank you. <laughs> really thoughtful. So now, Kelsey, reflecting on what Anne and Emma have just said about the context where practitioners are perpetrators, um, do you have any thoughts on what your perspective would be on the board's role in that situation? Yes. Look, I think that um, when we're listening to survivors and hearing that they would be very um, reticent and rightly so to be going and seeing someone who was known as a perpetrator of domestic violence, that's totally understandable. Um, and the, the role the board has in not um, condoning bad behaviour on the part of practitioners um, is both of those are valid points. The complexity arises in deciding, you know, who is a perpetrator when it hasn't been decided by a judge um, or a police or whatever. And we know that one of the anomalies sometimes is, is that, in fact, the primary aggressor is classified as the woman. So the, the woman might... Someone might have called the police and in comes the police. The man looks very charming. The woman looks dishevelled and he says she pushed him first, etc. And so, in fact, there's a lot of evidence that the primary aggressor diagnosed or, or written down by the police 
is often seen as the female victim but would be seen as a female perpetrator. So that's a complexity. What would the board do about someone who had uh, a record of being the primary aggressor and who was a woman who was actually a victim? So you can see the complexities of actually trying to action something. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. So, Anne, what would be the one uh, message for you for health practitioners around the um, their role in uh, minimising or, or improving situation in terms of family violence? Um, I think the key thing for health practitioners in this area is that they educate themselves about family violence and about the most uh, effective way in which they can respond to somebody who shares that sort of story with them. But health practitioners are usually one of the earliest groups of people who find out from an individual that they're in this kind of situation. And it's crucial that the person who hears about it first knows how to respond effectively and support that person and help them. So it's about knowledge and it's about uh, reflecting on our own attitudes, making sure that our attitudes are up to date and that we don't hold any old-fashioned ones of victim blaming and so on, um, and knowing what to do. So it's, I think education would be my number one take-home message. And Emma, what do you think is important to take us to a future free of family violence? I think creating a safe healthcare system is a good first step um, where there's open communication, open doors, and patients feel believed in and like they can just talk openly with their doctor or psychologist or nurse or whoever it is. I think we are on the right track by at least talking about it. Any particular messages you would give to health practitioners who are listening today from your perspective? Believe your patients. Talk to them before making assumptions or having a knee-jerk reaction. Trust that they know their situation better than anyone and just be there to support them on the journey. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Anne and Emma for sharing your experience, including your lived experience, Emma, and your wisdom and your insights with us today. This has been an important conversation. Thanks very much for having me, Susan. Oh, thanks for concentrating on this subject. It's an important one. And thank you for listening to Taking Care. If you would like more information, Kelsey has kindly passed on some useful links and resources that we encourage you to check out, particularly if you're a health practitioner. You can find those in the show notes. So it's been a pleasure having you today. If you have any questions or comments, email us at communications at opera.gov.au. You can also check out our back catalog, subscribe, and review us by searching Taking Care in your podcast player. And we'll see you next time.